0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. What a blessing it is to be together on this Lord's Day to worship God and praise his name. I'm so happy to see all of you here this morning. I want to invite you to get your Bible out, please, and go ahead and turn to your Old Testament, to the book of 2 Samuel. When you go in your Bible, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. I'm inviting you to join me in the word of the living God, the 2 Samuel chapter Seven, as you turn to 2 Samuel 7 this morning, get ready to study. I want to begin by giving you a key word to think about, and it is the word disappointment. Disappointment. Have you ever faced any moments of disappointment before in your life? For example, were you by any chance disappointed whenever the Diamondbacks lost to the Texas Rangers in the World Series a couple of weeks ago? Were you disappointed when the Phoenix Suns lost to the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA Finals back in 2021? Have you ever faced the disappointment of a breakup? Have you ever asked someone to marry you before And they answer with a no. Have you ever been denied a promotion on your job or a scholarship or a home loan or a spot on the basketball team or the baseball team or the soccer team? Or maybe you've been denied a baby. But maybe you and your spouse have been trying for a long time to get pregnant and that still hasn't happened. You're still getting Negative results. I believe we all have faced moments of disappointment from time to time before in our lives. In fact, not only have we faced moments of disappointment, but so have a lot of people that we can read about in the Bible. A lot of people we can read about in the word of God have faced moments of disappointment. One person that immediately comes to my mind is the Apostle Paul. If you remember last Sunday, in one of his lesson, lessons, Brother Mark Roberts preached to us a lesson about the time when the Apostle Paul wanted to go to Bithynia and preach the gospel. And God said, no. I said, no, no, you're, you're not going to go to Bithynia. The Apostle Paul faced a moment of disappointment. And I'm also reminded of Joseph. Joseph faced a lot of moments of disappointment. And I'm also reminded of Job and Moses and Jeremiah and Elijah and a man by the name of Barsabbas. You by any chance remember who Barsabbas is? No, I didn't say Barabbas. Barabbas was that criminal, that insurrectionist that the Jews demanded to be released instead of Jesus before the Lord was crucified. I didn't say Barabbas. I said Barsabbas. Do you remember who Barsabbas is? You should if you've been in the Acts Bible class. For those of you in the Acts Bible class in the auditorium, remember Barsabbas was one of two men who went up for the office of an apostle after the death of Judas and God did not pick him. God actually overlooked him. God actually picked the other guy to replace Judas. Can you imagine how disappointing that must have initially felt? I mean, can you imagine being Barsabbas and realizing that God did not pick you? God actually overlooked you. God actually said no to you, and he said yes to Matthias. You were rejected by God. To be an apostle. Our Sabbaths faced a moment of disappointment. But then what about also this guy right here in 2 Samuel 7? What about what about David? I mean, do you think that David ever faced any moments of disappointment? You you think that David ever, ever had any moments in his life when he realized that God was telling him no. You better believe David faced those moments. David faced those moments. In fact, that's exactly what's going on with him in this chapter before us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You see, for those who are members of the Monta Vista church family, you know that for the past year we've been studying a lot about the story of David, have we not? You know that we have followed David all over the place for the last year. You know that we have followed him from the pasture to the palace. We have seen him go from being a shepherd of his father's sheep to becoming a mighty warrior and a fugitive and a sojourner in the land of the Philistines. And now, now by this time, he is the king. He is the most powerful man. And all of Israel, in fact, as the king, as the most powerful man in Israel, David's been able to accomplish a lot of good stuff. I mean, think about it. He's been able to defeat and battle many of the enemies of God's people. And he's also been able to regain territory that was lost from Israel during the time of King Saul. And he's also been able to conquer Jerusalem and make it his capital and his stronghold. And he also has been able to increase his family. He's been able to increase his fame and his wealth and his notoriety throughout the world. And even though there is a problem that occurs, When he initially attempts to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, if you remember during that initial journey, there was a guy named Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 who is struck down dead by God because he touched the Ark of the Covenant. Even though there is a big problem on that initial journey to Jerusalem, eventually David is able to get the Ark there after david learns the will of god and does exactly what god prescribes he's able to make jerusalem the center of israelite worship in fact once the ark of the covenant finally makes it to jerusalem in this chapter before us we find david determining to do something else for the lord he wants to do something else for god and so in second samuel chapter 70 verse 1 read with me what the bible says please the bible says now it came about when the king lived in his house and the lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies that the king said to nathan the prophet see now i dwell in a house of cedar but the ark of god dwells within tent curtains nathan said to the king go do all that is in your mind for the lord is with you but in the same night the word of the lord came to nathan saying Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I want you to notice very carefully what the text is saying here, my dear friends. Notice how after experiencing rest from all of his enemies and after building for himself a house or or a palace, the Bible says that David determines to build a house for God. He wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a permanent Structure or a permanent physical temple where God is worshiped and praised by his people. In fact, notice how the Bible says here that David goes to the prophet Nathan. And this is the first time that Nathan is mentioned in David's story. David goes to Nathan and he asked him, what do you think about this? What do you think about this desire that I have to build a house for God? And what does Nathan tell him? Well, Nathan tells him, it sounds like a great idea to me. Nathan says you need to do that. May God bless you as you do that. You see, Nathan gives David his endorsement for this building project. But later on that night, he discovers that God doesn't give his. God doesn't want David to do this. God has not authorized David to do this. God has never in his word instructed his people to build him a permanent physical house or a physical structure to dwell in. The only thing God has authorized by this time is the building of the tabernacle. It is the building of a movable And portable place for his people to come together and worship his name. David wants to build a house for the Lord. But it is not the Lord's will for him to do that. And I believe that there are a lot of practical lessons we can learn from that, my dear friends. For example, one lesson I think we can learn from this is good intentions are not good enough. Do you see that? Good intentions are not good enough. Let me tell you something. David has good intentions right here. He's not sitting around thinking to himself, well, how can I dishonor God? How can I disrespect God? How can I do something that's going to make God mad at me? David has good intentions and his desire to build a house for the Lord. But as good as his intentions may be, God doesn't want him to do this. God did not tell him to do this. God did not authorize this project. He does not want him adding to his prescribed plan at this time. Good intentions are not good enough. That's one lesson we learn from this part of the text. But another lesson we learn is a lesson about the silence of God. The silence of God. From this text, we see that contrary. To what a lot of religious folks advocate today, the silence of God does not authorize. It does not authorize. Notice how God says to David, He says to him in this text, hey, 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 you go tell David, Nathan, that I never, I never say anything about a physical permanent house to be constructed for me to be worshipped in. And my silence, my silence is not permissive. My silence does not give David the green light. My silence does not give David the authority to start gathering supplies and doing whatever he wants to do. You see, David had to learn from Nathan and Nathan had to learn from God that God's silence about a matter is not permissive. It is not authorize, And you know who else needs to understand that same thing? A lot of people today, people who advocate using instruments in worship and women elders and using the Lord's money for food, fun and frolic. All these people need to learn this lesson. The silence of God does not authorize. That's a lesson that is clearly found in this text. But there's a third lesson here. And this lesson is about the need to always consult God. The need to always consult God before going or before giving David this green light. To go and build a house for the Lord, you know what Nathan, the prophet should have done first. He should have consulted God. He doesn't do that. He should have went to God and talked to God. He should have prayed to God. He should have asked God, hey, God, what do you think about this? What do you think about David's bright idea? What do you think about David's desire to build you a house? Nathan, the prophet, made a mistake. Well, he did not consult God before giving David his endorsement. And we need to learn from that mistake. We need to learn from that mistake whenever we believe that we've come up with some sort of bright idea that's going to glorify God before executing that idea. We need to see what God says about it first. We need to consult the Lord. We need to consult the word of the Lord because it may be that our quote unquote bright idea or our great idea, it may be out of step with the will of God. And so those are just a few lessons to take away from the first section of this text. But we're still not done here. Because, yes, God goes to Nathan and says, hey, Nathan, you should not have endorsed that. This is not my will that David built me a house. But notice what the text goes on to say in verse 8. Let's keep going in verse 8, where God continues to speak to Nathan. And he says, now, therefore, thus you shall say. To my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler or a prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you when your days are complete when you lie down with your fathers i will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and i will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever i will be a father to him and he'll be a son to me when he commits iniquity i will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as i took it away from Saul, whom i removed from before you Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne should be established forever in accordance with all these things and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So what's going on there in the text? Well, notice how after God tells Nathan that it was not his will for David to build him a house or a physical structure or temple. He then speaks of all the amazing things that he had done for David. And he promises he promises to build David a house. David wants to build God a house, but God says, no, 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 no. I am going to build you a house. God's going to build David a house. When God promises to build David a house, at the end of verse 11, he's not speaking of a, of a physical house. He, he's not speaking of a physical structure or a building or a physical dwelling place like the one you're going to go home to after we're done worshiping God today. No, when God speaks of building David a house here, he is speaking of a ruling family he is speaking of a ruling dynasty he is promising David that unlike in the case of Saul his kingly lineage would never be cut off it would never be cut off in fact the descendant the descendant that's mentioned in verse 12 there you see that descendant mentioned in verse 12 that actually has a dual fulfillment It has a dual fulfillment. First, it refers to Solomon. It refers to Solomon. It refers to David's son or David's offspring who would be the next king of Israel and who God would commission to build him a temple or a physical house for his people to come together to worship and praise his glorious name. Solomon is a big part. Of the fulfillment of that promise, but the ultimate fulfillment of that promise would be in well, it would be in Jesus, right? It would be in Jesus the Son of God. You see, while Solomon would build a physical house or a physical temple for the Lord, through Jesus, who was also a descendant or son of David, God was going to build a spiritual house. God was going to establish a spiritual kingdom. God was going to establish a kingdom that was not of this world where Jesus would sit on the throne and establish David's kingly lineage forever. That's the promise that God is making David here. And that promise, if you notice, is very similar to the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Very similar kind of promise. You really need to have this section marked in your Bible because, brothers and sisters, this is one of the most beautiful and most important promises that you will read in your Bible. This is one of the most important sections of Scripture and the Old Testament. And the question is, how does David respond to all of this? How does David respond to this message that God has for him through Nathan? How does David respond when God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. Well, in typical David fashion, David responds to God's will here by praying. He prays. Look at the prayer, please. Verse 18. Verse 18. The last section here, verse 18 of chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7, 18, it says, Then David, this is after Nathan spoke the word of God to him. David the king went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord? Who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? God, I couldn't have done it without you. Who am I that you bless me like this? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. You're talking about stuff that I'm not even going to be alive to see the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you for, you know, your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. And what one nation on this earth. It's like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you've redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people, Israel, as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you spoke spoken concerning your servant, his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, you, now, O oh Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O oh Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful. Powerful. I want you to ponder on that for just a moment, my dear friends. I want you to notice how after hearing... God's will here after hearing God say no you are not going to build me a house David he doesn't argue with God does he he doesn't shake his fist at heaven he doesn't display bitterness And anger and frustration because God won't let him do what he wants to do. He doesn't brag and boast about his accomplishments as a king. Instead, what David does is David responds to the will of God with humility. He has humility. He acknowledges the greatness of God. He praises God. He expresses thanksgiving towards God. He says that God is awesome and he's righteous and he's glorious and he is responsible for providing great blessings for his people. He accepts the will of God. And he expresses confidence in God's ability to keep his promises. In fact, you know that in other places in the Bible, we even find David. Helping gather the money and the resources and the supplies that his son Solomon is going to need to do what he wanted to do. And that is build the temple of the Lord. God tells David, no, no. You're not going to do what you want to do. You're not going to build a house for my name. And David responds to that with humility. He's humble. He accepts the will of God, he praises God, and he continues to have faith and trust in God. That's what David does here, but here's the real question. The real question is this, that's a great story, but what can we learn from it? What application can we take away from this? What's some practical stuff that we can learn from what David does here that can help us serve the Lord better And respond in a better way when God says no to us. Well, I think there are at least three lessons we need to take away from what happens here in 2 Samuel 7. And the first lesson is this. What can we learn from the occasion when God told David no? Well, one lesson we learn is sometimes God's going to do the same thing with us. Sometimes he's going to do the same thing with us. Sometimes he's going to say no to me and he's going to say no to you. He's going to say no to us like he said no to David. He's going to say no to us like he said no to the Apostle Paul. Now, I mentioned earlier the occasion when the Apostle Paul wanted to go through Bithynia and preach the gospel. And God told him, no, no, Paul, you're not going to go to Bithynia. You're going somewhere else. Now, that's one example of God saying no to Paul, but it's certainly not the only one. Let me give you another example, please. Look in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Will you go in your Bible, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. For those of you who've been keeping up with the Bible reading this year, you know where we're going here, don't you? You know here in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about that thorn in the flesh. That famous thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse number 7. In verse seven, Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times, three times that it might leave me and he has said to me my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness most gladly therefore i would rather boast about my weaknesses so the power of christ may dwell in me therefore i am well content i am well content with weaknesses with insults With distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, you and I both know that so often when people go to that text, they spend their time focusing on the wrong thing. They go to that text and they want to know what was what was the thorn? What's the thorn? That's what people want to know. And you read 10 different commentaries and you're going to get 10 different answers. Some say, oh, it's persecution. Persecution from the Jews. Some say, oh, it was a medical issue. Paul had some kind of eye problem. Maybe he had malaria. Some people are also going to say, well, no, this is some temptation or spiritual weakness that Paul had in his life. You read 10 different commentaries, you'll get 10 different answers. But here's the fact of the matter. The fact of the matter is we don't know. We don't know what Paul's thorn was because Paul doesn't tell us. The Holy Spirit does not tell us. What the Holy Spirit does tell us is when it came to this thorn, whatever it was, the Apostle Paul begged God, he pleaded to God, he prayed to God three times that God might remove it, and what did God say? No. God said no. No, I am not gonna remove this thorn I'm gonna leave it right where it is because it's gonna help you it's gonna help you stay humble when you could become arrogant and it's gonna keep you more dependent upon me God said no to a prayer request from an apostle but not only did God say no to an apostle he also said no to his son His son, Jesus. That's what we find in Matthew 26, right? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father, also on three different occasions, praying that God will remove the cup of suffering that he's about to drink. And God clearly, because we know the end of that story, God said no. Jesus had to drink that cup of suffering. But when you read Luke's account, Luke tells us that even though God did not say yes to that prayer request, he did send him an angel to give him the strength he needed to keep going. So God said no to Paul. He said no to his son. And certainly he's going to say no to us. And let's just be honest about it. Sometimes we struggle with that, don't we? We we struggle with that. We're disappointed by that. Sometimes we're so disappointed by that that we become bitter and we're angry. And maybe we start wavering in our faith and trust in God. Maybe we fail to consider that even though God sometimes says no to our request, he still loves us. And he still knows everything and he wants what is best for us. And he is likely with his answer. Looking out for our best interests. He is likely trying to save us a lot of heartache and a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow and a lot of problems. He can see that that job we want so bad, that's actually going to keep us away from our families. It's going to keep us away from our spouse and from our kids. And it's going to maybe hinder our ability to consistently gather with the saints on the Lord's day to worship him. He can see that we really can't afford that mortgage. We're not really ready for marriage. We're not really ready to have a baby. Being accepted into that particular university, that's not going to be good for us spiritually. Sometimes God's going to say no to us. And because He knows everything and loves us and cares about us, we don't need to be bitter about that. We don't need to be angry about that. Instead, we need to be humble and trust him. We need to be humble like David and trust God. We need to accept God's will. We need to accept God's wisdom and God's way. We need to pause and, and look around at our lives and, and acknowledge we are so blessed. We need to determine to use our blessings to honor God like, like David did in his life, like David Even when God says no to us, we need to keep on serving God. We need to bless the name of the Lord. We need to use our talents and our abilities and our resources to honor the Lord. We need to lift up our eyes and see the kind of work that we can do for God in our current circumstance. That's what David does. We need to be humble and continue trusting God. And ultimately, we need to do that because God is faithful. Would you agree with that this morning? Would you agree that we serve a faithful God? I hope you would agree with that because that is really the main point of 2 Samuel 7. That's the main thing I want you to take home this morning. If you don't take anything else home with you, if you've been asleep this entire lesson, I need you to wake up right now and I need you to take this point home. You've got to take this point home. You've got to understand that this account, and listen to me carefully, please. This account in 2 Samuel 7 is not really so much about David as it is about God. As it is about the faithfulness of God, as it is about God making an important promise to his servant. And throughout the rest of the Bible, God is determined to keep that promise. At least a thousand years before the coming of the Messiah, God promised here to sit somebody on David's throne who would establish his dynasty forever. And despite the fact that many of David's descendants, many of David's sons would sit on his throne and they would be wicked. They would be evil, they would be sinful, and many of the people of Judah would constantly get involved in idolatry and they would rebel against the Lord and they would go off into Babylonian captivity. Despite all the bad stuff that David's family is going to do from here on out through Jesus, God's son, what God promised was going to happen, it did happen. No matter how wicked. David's family became God was still faithful to keep his promise. Matthew wants us to understand that in the first verse of the gospel of Matthew and Matthew one in verse one. The gospel of Matthew opens up by saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Before telling us anything else, Matthew wants his audience to understand that God was faithful to keep his promises to Abraham and David through Jesus. God did it. And isn't that what Peter said on Pentecost? One more spot, if you will allow me in Acts chapter 2. I have to take you to Acts 2, because if you remember in Acts 2, as the apostle Peter stood before a crowd of thousands on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem, he preached about Jesus. And he said this about Jesus in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 30, as he talks about David, Acts 2 and verse 30. And so because he was a prophet, And knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to sit one of his descendants on his throne. That's going back to Second Samuel. That's why you got to study the Old Testament. This makes no sense if you don't know your Old Testament. Got to study the Old Testament. And in verse thirty-one, it says he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Then Jesus, God, raised up again. To which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this this which you both see and hear. What's Peter saying there? Peter is saying that Jesus, through Jesus, God kept his promise. Through Jesus, God kept his promise to David. Jesus came through the family of David. And he accomplished the will of God, and he was raised from the dead, and he currently reigns as king and lord on David's throne. Peter is saying that God is faithful. God was faithful to keep his promises to David, and he's also faithful to keep his promises to us. He's also faithful to keep his promise to forgive us whenever we repent, and to be with us even to the end of the world, and to return one day and resurrect us and take us to heaven to be with him forever. God is a faithful God. And so once again, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I'm impressed with David again. I'm impressed with his humility. I'm impressed with his devotion. I'm impressed with his willingness to continue serving the Lord, even though God told him no. In fact, beyond being impressed with David, I'm more impressed with God. I'm in awe of God. I am awe of the fact that right now as I stand to you on this Sunday morning, stand before you on this Sunday morning, Jesus reigns as king on David's throne, just like God promised. The question is, is he your king? Is Jesus your king? If he is not your king and your Lord, you have an opportunity to submit to him right here and right now. Whether that means responding to the gospel through faith and repentance and baptism for forgiveness of sins, or if you need to rededicate yourself to him once again. Whatever we can help you with this morning to serve the King Jesus, come to the front as we stand and we sing. There's a fountain.